Geese take over Vancouver. Plants grow in dirt from the moon. A gateway was found on Mars and a yellow brick road was discovered deep beneath the ocean. Plus, we discuss footage of a rare dragonfish. You're listening to Nature's Ep Beyond, the number one most unlistened to nature's podcast you can find. But at least I'm the best at something. So apparently, Canadian geese have become a bit of a problem. They're a bit much. They've become a bit much recently. I guess you could say there's been a bit of an invasion or a takeover of Canadian geese in Vancouver. And they don't know how to handle it. It's a, it's a real problem. Um, we have our best and brightest in Canada working on it. They've devised many plans to curb the issue, to deal with it. And... I don't know. We got an article here from the Weather Network. Let's just let's just uh take a gander, a goose and gander at the uh article here. This is uh from the Weather Network. Canada geese have become a nuisance around Vancouver, where park board officials are carrying out an egg addling program to keep their population under control. It's a two person job. One to move the Canada goose off the nest with a rod another to quickly grab the eggs, replacing them with others that have been treated to ensure they don't produce new goslings. Protective gear is worn, including something like a hockey mask. This might be the most Canadian thing I've ever read in my life. So they're basically, I bet you the rod is a hockey stick. The mask is definitely a uh, hockey mask. And I'm not sure if like, the eggs are actually false eggs. They're probably hockey pucks. And I don't know. I guess the geese fall for the hockey pucks. I guess they're not the brightest. Let's see. Back to the article. It's a practice called addling. And Vancouver Park Board staff have been doing it for more than a decade. Well, clearly it's not very effective if it's still a problem after 10 years. But despite their efforts, the Canada goose population in Vancouver has continued to grow and continue to create a nuisance. So is the problem that there's too many geese in one area or is the problem that too much of their natural habitat has been taken away from them? So now they're all kind of clustering in areas that are more suitable or ideal for them. I think a good way to combat this, instead of addling the eggs, I hope I'm saying that the right way. I don't even know if that's the right terminology. But maybe making more landscapes or nearby areas where they could also occupy may be more ideal for them to want to go there. Uh, that's, that's sort of an issue as well. Um, what else? They could make like... I don't know, like little man-made islands for them where they could have like little hatcheries and stuff. Maybe that would work better too. I don't know. I'm not an expert. Anyway, let's see here. The park board is looking for tips from the public to locate more nests, especially those on private property so staff can get more eggs before they hatch. We can easily assess most of the nests on public property, but there are many nests on private property on rooftops and on balconies and other places that are difficult to access. That was said by one of the people there, one of the stewards. I'm not going to name them, but even though they're it's public, whatever. I just Let's see, uh, the coordinator with the park board. 
Well, that's an interesting article, I guess. But uh, as you can imagine, the nuisance might be a bit of a problem for a lot of people. You know, goose crap like crazy. It gets everywhere. You, you can't walk through it. I walk through it. I don't care. I'll just step on it. It's basically just the digested grass. I, I could care less at that point. Other people are grossed out by it. I mean, it's going to get caught in your boots. You're going to need to bang those out. But uh, you can do your best to dodge it as much as possible. Uh, yeah, it's, I don't know, like, they're basically, like, geese are basically cobras and chickens put together. They hiss. They're moderately aggressive. They're pretty big. I'm pretty sure they're only getting bigger. I feel like they're evolving into emus. Like, eventually, they're just going to be, like, stalking people in tall grass and running at them for food once they're big enough to eat us so we gotta we gotta i don't know if we gotta curb the problem but we gotta come up with a solution the populations are heavy that might be a problem we need more like i don't know maybe grassy areas where they like to occupy for them to go hang out and chill uh i don't know if i like the idea of curbing them what if we introduced more predatory animals like coyotes instead of getting rid of all the coyotes or getting rid of all the foxes if we had more of their natural predators maybe that would just balance the books itself i don't know i'm not an expert i'm not a professional but i mean if the, if taking away the eggs isn't working we got to explore other avenues here and you know i'm not really a, for the culling or whatever of animals like i always like keeping my animals alive but um modern problems require modern solutions and maybe i don't know i don't know vancouver that well i don't know like the uh wildlife policies there but maybe they had at one point like a really high wolf coyote fox population that helped keep those numbers down kept everything in check and maybe they got rid of that coyotes and stuff because, you know, they were too much of a nuisance. But maybe we have to learn to live more in harmony with nature and let them balance each other out while we just sort of, you know, become like the curators of nature, you know, find that kind of balance. I don't know. Uh, I haven't dove too much into it. Maybe if someone from there is listening, they could maybe go to like a town meeting, pitch some ideas to them, get it all figured out. It's become such a problem. I had uh, someone send me this. It's a video. You can't see the video, obviously, because this is like an audio podcast. But I'm hoping that the audio from this uh, does it justice. Dude, they're everywhere. Don't go into the tall grass. Yeah, so that was a video. It wasn't that exciting. I'm sorry if that got you hyped up. But basically, the geese are everywhere. They're in the tall grass. They're hiding. You can't even see them. You'll be walking down a trail, and all of a sudden, it's basically like that scene in Jurassic Park where the velociraptors just start coming out of nowhere and just, like, taking people out. If you got a small dog, it'll probably put up a good fight, but it's also going to be, like, twice the size of your small dog, so you got to be careful. Uh, 
yeah, I don't know. Keep your dogs close. Keep them on a leash. That's what I got. That's what I got to say about that. So I'm just going to jump into the next article here. That's uh, so scientists were able to grow plants in soil or like dirt, you know, from the moon. And that's a pretty fucking cool thing. If you ask me, like you could get some lifeless soil from the moon that hasn't been exposed to air or nothing the same way, like in the same capacity earth has. And when you bring that dirt down to earth and you throw some seeds in it, you know, obviously you got to water it. Apparently it'll grow. So let's see what the article says here. Florida researchers just got 12 grams of moon dirt from NASA to try and sprout their seeds. Let's see here. For the first time, I don't know why anyone hasn't done this before. Like, no one wanted to see if it could happen. This is the first time. I don't know. My mind is baffled by that. Anyway, for the first time, scientists have grown plants and soil from the moon collected by NASA's Apollo Apollo astronauts. Researchers had no idea if anything would sprout in the harsh moon dirt. I wanted to see if it could be used to grow food by the next generation of lunar explorers. The results stunned them. I guess you, this speaks a lot towards how there was like zero incentive on having like a long-term moon base of any sorts. So they never even cared to check if like the soil was like sustainable or had any kind of like nutrients in it. But I guess like, even if it's not fully, uh, like full of nutrients to grow like really good plants and food, if it's enough to be like the body of the soil and they only need to bring like other certain key compounds and add it, it still adds less weight to what they have to bring in order to have like sustainable food sources. Anyway, back to the article. Holy cow. Plants actually grow in lunar stuff. Are you kidding me? Uh, said uh, the guy from University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. Uh, the student and his colleagues planted thalecress, a small annual weed related to mustard and cabbage, in moon soil, in moon soil returned by Apollo 11's Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin and other moonwalkers. They don't even bother naming them. Like, oh, that's so sad. <laughs> They're just the other guys. Uh, the good news, all the seeds sprouted. The downside was after the first week, the coarseness and other properties of the lunar soil stressed the small flowering weeds so much that they grew more slowly than seedlings planted in fake moon dirt from Earth. What is fake moon dirt from Earth? Just regular dirt? Or is it like sand? Like, uh, I don't know. Maybe they're just replicating the compounds, like what it is pound for pound out of like base materials. Most of the moon plants ended up stunted. Everything grows smaller on the moon. Um, let's see. What else does it say? Results were published Thursday in a journal, Communications Biology. I would love to talk to these types of people. They're so, like, it's so hard to get guests on this show that want to talk about stuff like this. Uh, the longer the soil was exposed to punishing cosmic radiation and solar wind on the moon, the worse the plants seemed to do. 
The Apollo 11 sample is exposed to a couple billion years longer to the elements because of the Sea of Tranquility's older surface, where at least conducive for growth, according to the sign. Where, where, oh my god, where the least conducive for growth. This is where, I'm not even going to bother. I've, I've completely failed. I'm just embarrassing myself at this point. According to scientists, uh, this is a big step forward to know that you can grow plants. Yes, it is. A space plant biologist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison apparently said that. Who had no role in the study, but, you know, he's a scientist, so let's of bio, space plant biology. That's pretty cool, space plant biologist. How come the space plant biologist never tried this or wanted to do this? See, this is just mind rack. What does he study then? Like, what does he do with his spare time? He's a space plant biologist. Does he just try growing them in, like, zero gravity or some sort of simulated no gravity? What is, he hasn't thought to himself, maybe I should grow it in moon dirt. Let's see. I want to be the first person to grow something in Mars soil. We need to get a sample back to Earth ASAP. I want to grow uh, Mars potatoes and tomatoes. And I don't know. What else is good? Could I get like, like I don't know, maybe a carrot? Uh, the real next step is to go and do it on the surface of the moon. Yeah, that, of course, that's the real next step. Um, moon dirt is full of tiny glass fragments from the micrometeorite impacts that got everywhere in the Apollo lunar landers and wore down the Moonwalker spacesuits. Oh, so the moon is like fiberglass, basically. Like, you know, when you touch that pink insulation, you like rub it on your clothes or something, it's it super itchy because you got all these like little thin particles of glass basically rubbing into you. That's what the moon is like. It That seems like... So you couldn't even barehand the soil. It would just be horrible. Like, I love space and I love the idea of space, but when I read about how horrible it is and how inhospitable, like, Mars and the moon are, and, like, then I take a look at Earth at how beautiful it is with the running water or the massive diversity of life forms and like you know the the way the oceans move and the wind and all that stuff and the plants and then you just look at like the moon and mars is just the worst desert possible that you can't even breathe in i don't know if that's much to get excited about but maybe one day i'm i like space i'm excited about space but it's just so disheartening to hear how inhospitable it is and how it has like a lack of like it has a, a far less beauty appeal in terms of beauty in comparison to earth i think that's what I dis, that's what my disdain for it comes from but i do like the possibilities of the future so anyway one solution might be to use younger geologic spots on the moon like lava flows for for digging up planting soil the environment could also be tweaked altering the nutrient mixture or adjusting the artificial lighting yeah so that kind of touches on what i said earlier where they kind of just have to bring less base materials or maybe the base materials are there and they just have to like 
sort it out, you know, filter them and all that kind of stuff. But then that means bringing those kinds of technology and devices and all that stuff. Uh, I'm not going to really read any more of this article. I think we got the, the gist of it. It's a pretty long one here, but, um, I want to see if they can grow something besides like a really hardy weed. And I want to see if they can grow like cherry tomatoes. I want a cherry tomato from moon dirt. Uh, I think it would be delicious to have pieces of glass in my tomatoes and, uh, yeah, I want to have a glass tomato, but, uh, moving on. The next article we have is from, uh, sky news, NASA pictures of Mars doorway spawns conspiracy theories. That is what you're really looking at. I don't know what that means. Okay. Conspiracy theorists have suggested that the image shows an actual doorway carved into rock by intelligent alien species. NASA Curiosa rover snapped this picture. You can't see that, but you should probably Google it. And people think it looks like a doorway in the rock. I'm looking at it. It sort of looks like a doorway in the rock. It looks like it was carved out, but you know, uh, sort of like a lot of what we see on earth when you look at the, uh, ancient civilizations and how they carve things in the stone. At first glance, the photo of the Mar, uh, the photograph of Mars released by NASA appears to show a doorway carved into rock. The grainy image captured by the Curiosity rover last week clearly shows a rectangular gap in the rock face and has perhaps inevitably spawned conspiracy theories that point to it as evidence of alien life on the red planet. I don't think it, I mean, let's pretend for a moment that it was made by aliens or like for, or like life at, or something intelligent or living or whatever. Are, are they saying that they did it currently that they're currently there or perhaps maybe a long, long time ago. That might be more intriguing. That would be a better conspiracy theory. Ancient Mars civilizations. That's a way, way funner. Um, I don't think that's really a conspiracy theory. What would we call that? No one's conspiring something there. There has to be, like, I, well, it's called paranormal. A paranormal idea is that it's evidence of alien life on the red planet. Uh, for as long as humans have looked up at the skies, we have seen things that aren't really there. Whether pictures and constellations, a face on the moon, or a mysterious hot spot spotted by Chinese scientists that turned out to be a boulder, that was like a couple, that was like last month. There was like, uh, the Chinese lunar exploration mission identified a mysterious hut on the horizon of the moon. Yeah. So that was like, that was like maybe a month ago. It looked like there was like a cube, like in the distance on the moon, it ended up just being a rock. Sorry if you can hear fireworks going off, it's everyone celebrating. Um, and the simple explanation for the door on Mars is actually contained within the photograph itself. Um, uh, if you look more closely, scientists have uh, have said it shows evidence that the feature was formed through normal geological processes. Uh, yep. A uh, deep crack or fissure is visible inside, quote unquote, the door, indicating a fracture in the rock, something that happens on both Mars and Earth and could have taken place any time in the past few hundred million years. That's a pretty large time scale. Uh the crack is a fracture and they are abundant on Mars and Earth and 
no need for uh, Mars quakes to produce them, said profess said one of the professors of uh, that worked on the Curiosity mission with NASA. Uh, there is nothing at all strange in the image. These are just normal geological processes. Perspective also comes into play. NASA has said the fissure only appears to be a full-sized orb because the image is extremely zoomed in. The gap is actually a small crevice in the rock, uh, said a spokesperson for a fact-checking website. The team scientists underlined just how small it is. They said it's 30 centimeters by 45 centimeters. Oh, that sucks. It looks way bigger than that. In the picture, it looks like, you know, you'd walk into like a pyramid or something. Um, There's nothing at all strange in the image. Oh, yeah, I can't read that. So we get the picture now of that. They've basically debunked it, but that's not fun. So let's talk about the paranormal. The paranormal is way more fun. It's way more captivating. It's a way better thought experiment. I'm going to pretend this is a 30-foot door. And despite it being 30 centimeters. And I'm going to say I like the idea of it being, what if it was a Stargate? Yeah, like Stargate SG-1. It's like you could connect from Earth to Mars through these gates, but we don't have the, like, alien tech. You know, like that one gate in uh, Peru. That one, what are they called, like the Stargate, the Star Doorway? I don't know. You got to look it up. Anyway, that would be a way cooler thing if it was that. I don't know why everyone's got to take the magic out of the world, but. They just do, so whatever. I'm sure there's some paranormal podcasts out there covering this stuff at length. Uh, probably should check some of that out if you're into that sort of stuff and into that kind of fun. All right, moving right along. Next topic is the yellow brick road discovered under the ocean floor. I'm going to call it right now, it's Atlantis. And... Despite this article is probably going to science the heck out of it and tell me it's not Atlantis. I'm doubling down. It's it's Atlantis. I don't care what it says. Ocean explorers have found a natural volcanic structure deep underwater that has the appearance of a mythical man-made road. See, right off the hop of this article, this is Newsweek. They, they shatter my dreams. They crush them completely. I thought we were... Uh, you know, where we're going to discover the lost city and all its mysteries and all of its uh, wonders. The underwater structure was discovered by marine scientists aboard the exploration vessel EV Nautilus, who were using a remotely operated vehicle to peek at underwater structures known as seamounts, which are mountains formed by volcanic activity underwater. Uh, specifically, their mission called the uh, Oh, I can't pronounce that. That's too... Uh, I can't. Uh, I wish I could, but I can't. Uh, Lou... Uh, it's a Hawaiian. It's very long. Lou Yua Kikumu. My best shot at that, and I know it's wrong. Expedition is to study the... Another Lili... Ukanlani Ridge Seamounts in Hawaii. Sorry for butchering that one as well. Their aim is to investigate 
a split in the seamount trail which has puzzled scientists the origin of the thousands of seamounts in the central and western pacific region is yet to be fully understood the scientists document their research live which includes releasing video footage from remote uh, vehicles sent uh, to the sea bed in one clip posted on YouTube. The scientists are seen observing geological formations and picking up rocks with a robotic arm. It's 100% a road. This was man-made. It's yellow. These bricks were chosen by choice and put together. This is the road to Atlantis. This is a sunken city. Maybe it's not Atlantis. Maybe it's some other mythological Hawaiian sunken island or landmass. I'm doubling down. I don't care. I don't care if I'm wrong. I'm doubling down. I'm going for it. At one point, the scientists thought... I Sorry, I just saw the picture. I mean... It looks like something they would build in, like, Roman times. It's, uh... Uh... I don't know. You should check it out for yourself. It's kind of interesting how it's only in like, it's like the width of a path too. That's the trippy part. It's not even like it's like in some weird disformate, like formated or it's like super like elongate or something. It's like literally path shape. Uh, actually, I guess like near the end of it, it kind of snakes a bit or something. Maybe it's not come perfect, perfectly linear. At one point, the scientists stumble across the pattern of cracks on the seabed and strongly resemble the man-made brick road with the stick rectangular blocks separated from one another via straight lines and right angles. The formation stands out directly from the relatively formless seabed around it. Yeah, it's a, it's a road. I don't care. I'm doubling down. I want to believe, therefore I believe. One of the scientists says... It's the road to Atlantis. Another one calls it the yellow brick road from the children's novel, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. The more likely answer is that it's a rock formation that is actually an example of ancient uh, active volcanic geology. According to the video description posted on EV Nautilus YouTube channel. Yeah, check out that YouTube channel. Check out the video. It's pretty cool. Um, yeah, I don't know. Atlantis. I mean... Hawaii would isn't normally one of the areas that they like to speculate if it ever existed is where it would be. If I had to guess, I would say it's probably around the Azores. Maybe it's like some sunken island around there. I don't know. I'm I'm, I'm going with the Azores near Portugal off the coast there. I don't know. I like that idea, though. Maybe a long time ago, you know, like there was some like natural disaster, some massive like fault, and it was like above the water at one point, and it just like sank, it just tunneled, it just went like cataclysmic, just boom, gone. I don't know. It's probably not possible, but I feel like extreme cataclysmic events are possible. They're just so cataclysmic that it's hard to even imagine it's even possible in the first place but i mean everything kind of seems impossible until it's done until it's possible then it's like oh this of course this was going to happen this was always the way it was going to be i could have called this i saw it coming I, you know hi what is it 
hindsight i don't even know the saying but i want to say it's hindsight's 2020 is that the saying i don't know um this next article from science alert boom science alert science alert alert. feast your eyes on the spectacular rare dragonfish shimmering in the ocean dragonfish are kind of cool they're like a big bronze or gold cigar just making its way through the ocean it's shiny i like it deep beneath the waters of um monterey bay is that how you say it monterey bay researchers in california have filmed an extremely rare deep sea fish at first glance the little fella looks like a sort of a bronze shimmery cigar floating on end Uh, basically that's how i described it but the feverish wiggle of its tail gives the creature a true identity gives gives the creature's true identity away the little bronze beauty is known to scientists as the high fin dragonfish and of all the deep sea dragonfish in monterey bay this is one of the rarest in more than three decades of deep sea research and more than 27 1600 hours of video we've only seen this particular species four times researchers at monterey bay bay aquarium research institute recently tweeted alongside footage of the fish the individual was caught on camera during a recent expedition i like how they call it an individual that's interesting which is a large ship set up uh, to deploy and control Remotely operated vehicles, ROVs, as they uh, dive thousands of feet under the sea. In this case, the footage was taken at a depth of nearly 300 meters. That's 1,000 feet. And by the looks of things, the dragonfish was headed even deeper. He's been spotted. He didn't want anything to do with it. He wanted to go down deeper. Dragonfish are highly capable swimmers, as you can see from the footage. But when they are hunting, they hide quietly in the dark and wait. While high-fin dragonfish are covered in iridescent cloak of bronze scales, other species are not so colorful. In fact, dragonfish can be pigmented with some sort of the blackest black found in nature. Uh, with a smile full of sharp teeth, these predators must look downright terrifying to smaller fish and crustaceans uh, as they emerge from the deep dark to engulf their prey. Yeah, some of these are like, what's that? The specific, that Pacific black dragon. That's a pretty mean looking fish. That's actually way more badass than the other one. Some some dragonfish even have creepy glowing red eyes. They use a searchlight. Man, these things are, these things, I like these things. They're cool. Uh, other use of bioluminescent f- fishing rods uh, attached to their chins to lure in their prey. The black belly dragonfish. He's got like a, this little like, basically like a snake's tongue attached to its uh, chin that I guess he lures in prairie with. Uh, yeah, so we got footage of rare fish, rare dragonfish. They're badass. They're deep sea. They're rarely seen. They're hard to observe. Check out the videos. You can probably just YouTube or Google uh, rare dragonfish footage i don't know when the we know 
like some small percentage of what's in the ocean. It's like one of the least explored areas on this planet. Like we're, we want to see space and outer space, Mars and the moon, but there's so much still right here at home. We have yet to explore that, uh, might be worth, uh, checking out, you know? So I, I like the deep sea stuff. It's pretty much to me, like just as interesting as space, but we're guaranteed to find life down there at some point because we know earth has life where space, it's kind of a crapshoot. And basically we th- the rest of the solar system doesn't have it as far as we know, but maybe beyond it, but that seems to be a little outside of our capacity and probably not within my lifetime. So, uh, yeah, down below we go. Anyway, guys, I think that's it for this episode of Nature's at Beyond. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I've been trying to reach out to a lot of different people and get different guests. Uh, It's been difficult. Uh, A lot of scammers are on Instagram trying to fish people's accounts and hack them. So when I reach out to people, they're pretty apprehensive and nervous of that because they just think, oh, this guy's another scammer or whatever. Because even if it does appear authentic and they can look at, uh, you know, Spotify and like YouTube and all the places I'm on, it's like, how do they know that's me like bonafide, like 100%? And it's not just someone like co-opting the podcast to like get their information, like click this link and then all of a sudden you're accounts lost so be careful because of that i've been gone for a while but now i'm back again i might disappear for another little while i'll try to still do episodes but um there's a lot going on in my life good things not bad things like well some things have been hard but uh not nothing out of the ordinary or like you know super super weird or messed up like just good things like i might be moving soon so i've been packing um that means the podcast will be relocating as well uh you know and just dealing with like responsibilities and stuff like that and work and yada 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 and just like the trying to get guests on and then you know trying to set things up and then people you know changing their minds about it and changing the dates it kind of just became a mess so i just went back to the basics i went i'm just going to do it by myself give people the solo episodes um i am trying to find like uh someone to sit in on my podcast it's kind of like i don't know like sort of like how they do on other podcasts just have like a peanut gallery kind of chime in every now and then maybe have like a laugh i don't know maybe just talk about something maybe bring up a different perspective i haven't thought about on a certain subject it's always better for a little bit of banter in the episodes i find and yeah i don't know uh need some water here I can't really think of much else to say, but uh, I hope you're still listening. I hope you're enjoying what I'm putting out. And if you do, follow me on all the socials, like, subscribe, comment, all those interactions, they help. Um, I still see a lot of like those nature photographers I've spoken to and stuff like that. They're killing it. Follow them. You can find them in other episodes. Uh yeah, there's t- there's tons of great stuff out there uh, regarding like wildlife photography, the aurora borealis, like just seeing like nature, you know, I don't know. If you want more nature, support and follow those people who advocate for it, who are custodians of it, you know. Anyway, 
I hope everyone enjoyed this episode. It was kind of a, it's probably pretty boring. It's kind of interesting. I like the paranormal stuff, how it kind of le- bleeds into like nature. I like having like a combination of paranormal and nature. It's, it's awesome. Um, anyway, that's all folks.